Hello and welcome to another episode of The Philosophy Guys. So today I am joined by Chris Matheson. He is the co-writer of the Bill and Ted movies, including a new one coming out this this week actually, and it's Bill and Ted Face the Music. Highly recommend those. Love getting some of those. He also has written some books about religion, but with a comedic spin to them. Um, they are fun as hell as well. He wrote The Trouble with God, The Story of God, and both of those analyze the, the Christian God and put the comedic spin on that. But his new book is the, the Buddha story, so it takes on Eastern religion. Um, anyway, really enjoyed this conversation. I had a lot of fun with it. And the last half hour or so, we really had some great back and forth on Buddhism that you should definitely check out. So stay till the end of this episode. But as always, thank you for listening to my blabbering thoughts on life and, and all out support. So check out the discord for more fun convos, join the Patreon so you can, so I can, so I can spend more time on what I love doing this. And, um, you also get those bonus episodes. So you also get to spend more time with me <laughs> and also you can check out, uh, me on Apple podcast and rate the podcast to help boost me in the charts. Um, and yeah, just share with your friends on the interwebs, share with your family, email me, show me your love and, and show me your anger. But yeah, that covers it. Enough of, enough of just me. Let's jump into my mind that today includes Chris. So let's enter the labyrinth. So I guess to to start, my like opening question is, what got you into writing? Just because I know know a little bit about you from your, of course, your Bill and Ted movies, but also your dad who wrote I Am Legend. So kind of yeah. just to give you give a little introduction of how you got into writing and screenwriting and all that stuff. Well, as you said, you know, my dad was was in the business, and so mm-hmm. I grew up kind of around it, and I went to. Um, UCLA and studied uh, theater for that was I did theater through high school and and through college and even into grad school I wanted to do first I wanted to act and then I wanted to direct um, and probably I, I wanted to carve out my own path from the one right. my dad had already had already built so I steered away from writing I didn't I didn't really write very much um, and then probably late college I found this very strong interest in comedy developing which had which had a lot to do with um, meeting Ed Solomon who's my writing partner on Bill mm-hmm. and Ted and also another friend named Ryan Rowe and 
I found myself laughing a lot with these guys and, and, and wanting to make comedy and the desire to make comedy. You can only, as far as I know, you can only do two things. You can only write or perform. And I didn't want to perform. So I started writing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's interesting. So maybe we can tie this into to Bill and Ted then is it, I'm, I'm always been kind of curious of how, those characters to develop because when you when you reached out to me i was like kind of surprised and i didn't like make the connection right away and then like i looked looked into you and i realized like you were really young basically when like around college years when bill and ted kind of started getting formed so i'm kind of curious because when you just said that that college is kind of when you got into comedy i'm kind of interested in how uh those characters developed and how it they ended up developing around those years for you. And then also around your time of getting into comedy. That's kind of interesting. If you want to dive into that. Um, Ed and I met in college and we pretty quickly started laughing together. We thought a lot of yeah. the same thing were funny. We just looked at the world and, and laughed at a lot of the same things. And so we hung out a lot and then we, we both graduated in, in 82 and on the other side of that, wanted to just keep keep playing with comedy, keep trying to, to right. work on that. Because we just liked playing around together, uh, and uh, along with our third friend, Ryan Rowe. So we did a, we formed a, like a little improv group every Sunday night. We rented this little theater in early Fine. 1983. Not, not for an audience. We weren't performing for an audience, but <clears throat> just to work out, sort of, and play with ideas and the characters of Bill and Ted emerged from an improv that we did one night and we liked them instantly. They seemed funny to us. Ed and I played, played the two characters and, and we really enjoyed playing them so much so that we went out afterwards and talked for a couple of hours, went to a coffee shop and just sort of started building their, their inner lives and who they were and, and what they were all about. And we just kept playing around with them for about a year. And then uh, finally, we both wanted to be in movies. So mm. we thought, well, why don't we, maybe, maybe these characters who we've just been playing around with, we could put them in a movie. So we tried that. Oh, fine. Yeah, because I, I was always curious. And I found that interesting when I found that out when you were like younger, just because... I mean, honestly, for me, it's like one of the one of the, my favorite movies to watch when you know I'm like stoned or something. Just a it's like a fun movie, and and also just some of the uh, like one of my favorite scenes is the one with Socrates, for example. And yeah, there's just a lot of fun. So it was really I really looked forward to kind of like asking you about how that that formed, and it was cool that it kind of formed in your in your uh, younger years. So then yeah. I'm also curious because, because the new one's coming out the end of this month, right? The the new Bill and Ted movie. Yeah, a week from Friday. A week from Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So I am curious because I mean, they're younger in those movies, but now the actors like Keanu Reeves and stuff, they're going to be older now. Like what, how, how did you go into the third one in developing that? Is it like a similar, a similar tone or is it like more of like, a coming like you know transitioning the characters and what they would be like in their older years i guess well we didn't want to try to just play them like they were still teenagers because right. they're not i mean almost 30 years have passed and, and we knew that that had to be accounted for 
not only accounted for, but we wanted that to be part of it, that these guys have lived and they've grown up and they're not kids. Had experiences and yeah. A lot. And then their big plans haven't been realized and they've been married for a long time and they've been dads for a long time. And Hmm. they're, um, so we, we knew that that, that was what we wanted to do with them. We didn't want to just, have them act and and nor would Alex and Keanu have done that. They just wouldn't have had interest in doing that. But Ed and I didn't want to, that was not of interest to us either. So they're still Bill and Ted. Right. Yeah. They're, they're fundamentally, I mean, I'm still fundamentally, I'm 61 and I'm not completely different than I was when I was 24. I mean, I am, but I'm not. And I mean, I still think a lot of the same things are funny. I still like a lot of the same things. I still dislike a lot of the same things. Not a different human being, but the years do, they do change you somewhat. So it's kind of both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of like the wisdom of the years and we'll be able to see that. Type of thing. I mean, I don't know whether I'd say it's the wisdom of the <laughs> years, but definitely the weight of the years for sure. Yeah. And so I guess, so I, I kind of want to, to touch on the comedy point just because that's kind of what your screenwriting background is. And then also when we like got kind of dive into your books as well around religion, comedy is kind of like your thing. So I guess, and especially yeah. with, with the, the religious, uh, the books you kind of tie in with. How do you, what do you see comedy's role as, as this kind of, you know, I, I see it as this too, as like a powerful tool to kind of present information and not only, not only in, in like screenwriting, but also in, you know, diving into a religious text, for example, using comedy to present, you know, very useful and, and important information. I think comedy can do a lot. I think it's uh, it's kind of like our little secret weapon in life. It, it's a bit of a Swiss army knife. I think it can do a lot of things. But I think one of the things that it's really good at is deflating things mm. that are uh, overinflated, gassy, pomposity. Yeah. It's, it's very good for letting the air out of something that's overinflated. And so that's in many ways the starting point of the religious books. Um, it's also just good for silliness and, and play and, and, um, and it's really good for on a deeper level, just dealing with fears and pains. And, and I mean, it's, it's Agreed. really good. It's, mm-hmm. it's very good. It's very good for that. So it does a lot. Yeah. And yeah, I, I like your point about how it's, it adds this kind of lightheartedness to it because, for example, in Utah, um, it's if you're not a Mormon, it's almost like necessary to go and see the Book of Mormon uh, just to kind of, you know, it's, it's a sure. cultural thing. But sure. what I found fascinating is, is although I, I think I've heard, I've heard them describe uh, the creators of it, like how it's, it's, it's like, what was it, like an atheist love letter to, to Mormons or something like that. So you can yeah. see where that they put some compassion towards their interpretation of the religion within, within the play. However, what I always find interesting is how actually Mormons around here, they, they enjoy the play as well. They enjoy it. They, they have fun with it. And I think it's really important to kind of use that kind of comedic style to introduce stuff like that. Because, you know, it's, it's like if you immediately are just 
the whole time. And I, and I noticed this throughout your texts as well of, of how it's not just always combative. It's like almost always combative in this sort of sarcastic tone where it kind of puts people off if they are religious. But yeah, like sure. if there's if there's some of that that kind of I don't want I feel like sarcasm is the wrong word to use, but kind of lightheartedness in a way, but almost <laughs> also respecting the the text, for example, is important. And comedy is like kind of this great median to kind of kind of do that. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Sarcasm is of limited use in this world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, yeah, I guess, I guess my question for you too is, is, is when you went into kind of, I guess, I guess my first question is what, what kind of made you have this transition from screenwriting into basically diving into the, the big religious texts and deciphering them in your own kind of, almost like your own voice and own character creation. Cause I've, I found that fascinating. Cause when you reached out to me and you're like, Oh, I'm like the creator of Bill and Ted. I was like, what, what? And then you're like, went into how you wrote these books. I was like, I had no idea. And then I just found that super interesting how you kind of made that transition. So I was kind of fascinated by that too. I've had a real strong interest in religion for a long time. Um, I've got my own, I don't, like stories of absolute truth. They just mm. don't, and I don't care for them. They bother me. I don't think anybody has a right to that. And from a comedic standpoint, this stuff is just found comedy. It's just yep. laying yep. there. It's <laughs> um, the, here's these stories that claim they make these enormous claims. Mm-hmm. these huge claims of, of, of with great certainty of absolute truth. Like here's what it is. Here's what reality is. Here's the meaning of it. Here's how it started. Here's how it's going to end. And here's everything you should do while you're here without really any <laughs> evidence at all. Right. They just make them. And so it's, they set themselves up as to be deflated, I think, because it's so overblown. And um, when I started looking up at them that way, then yeah, that was very attractive to me. Yeah. And my, my audience will definitely like your point of taking issue with absolute truth claims. Cause it's not, absolute truth claims is not something, you know, that only the religious do, but religious is it's the easiest to kind of, pinpoint what they're doing and like why it, why it fails. Um, and yeah, that, that's always been a big thing for me too, is because, uh, it's just like part of the human condition I feel like is the fact that we don't know, like we don't, there's no way for us to have absolute certainty in pretty much anything. And even the stuff that we are pretty certain about, we're still not absolutely certain with like absolutely 100% certainty. And yeah, it's always interesting where, Religion especially kind of relies on a like a lot of times this one text or or one text that has multiple texts that are deciphering that one text and yeah. that, and, and that type of thing and pulling from that and then relying on these accounts from history and you're all this this all these these things that combine into this this basically 
you, when you outside looking in, you're like, that's not certain. We're not, we can't be certain of that. We're relying on these accounts that are not reliable or were written down years later. And then, yeah, something I always found interesting is that. And, and that's, that's kind of going back to the comedy point as well, though, is finding a way to, to poke fun at it, but like poke fun at it in, in a, in a lighthearted way in a sense, because, you know, it, it I think that's kind of the way to get them to at least start questioning those absolute truths. Cause, cause that's like, at the end of the day, that's kind of what I feel like your motivation for writing those texts too. And then my motivation for a lot of times doing this podcast is about that to get people to question those things they find to be absolutely certain mm-hmm. and finding ways to best do that, whether it's comedy, whether it's just persuasion, rhetoric, whatever it is, is important. Right. So I guess, I guess my question for you too is, is, was that kind of uh, an important motivation going in? Was like, hey, maybe I can get people to question these absolute truths by using kind of this comedic tone. Well, I can't really write comedy from any place other than this makes me laugh. That's kind right. of my only natural starting mm-hmm. point. So I had to just kind of follow that. And I, I find for myself, if I'm trying to think about what anybody else will think while I'm writing it. That's not very helpful generally, but while I was reading these books, I would periodically just shake my head in amazement <laughs> and think, I just don't know how anybody can believe this. I just don't know how. And what I've been told by believers, ex-believers generally is that most people don't actually read these books. Most followers of these religions, they don't actually read these books. Mm-hmm. They cherry pick. They, the, the leaders, the priests and the ministers and the rabbis, and they curate it. And they're like, well, here, you know, think about this, think about that. But it's hard for me to believe that a serious person, and let's say Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is a serious person. That guy's no fool. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. vote for him, but he's an intelligent man. He's a highly intelligent man. How can that guy have read the Book of Mormon and take it seriously? I, I mean, I guess he has because he's sort of a he's sort of a church leader, I think, in a way. Yeah. Totally. But I, that I don't that I don't understand. Um, I, I think a lot of people just yeah they just cherry pick and they take a few stories they like and they live their lives around that. And they that I think I came to think that it's just people like the community, and mm. the books are just a pretext for people to hang out together and comfort each other and be less scared and less lonely. I think. Yeah, I, actually, I do agree with that sentiment too, and and it also you know, they might not realize that's the, the underlying yeah. desire at the foundation and believing that their text is the absolute certain or certainty or absolute truth makes them feel better about that underlying community aspect. Like they, they might like that aspect and they're part of something. And, and I think that idea is supported by some of the most religious places in our country tend to be in rural areas. And rural areas that still have it where, you know, I grew up in a small town too. I grew up Catholic. So it's like those, the churches in those areas, that's where everyone comes together. That's where they, where you get to know the people in your community. Um, 
and a good way to justify doing that and coming together is, oh yeah, yeah. we believe in this thing that we're, we're certain is true. This is God. And, and, and maybe the other thing is I'm curious in your thoughts on this too, to kind of branch off of this is I always see religion, you know, as it's kind of like answering the question of what is life or what is meaning. So a lot of times religion ends up being these, these meaning proclamations, um, which makes it kind of philosophical in nature where maybe where it differs in philosophy is I think religion is much more willing to make these kind of absolute truth claims and be certain, be like certain in their certainty where philosophy tends to be way more open-ended where, Oh, this could be the case, but I don't know type of thing. And, you know, I think that's where the separation is, but at the end of the day, it's still trying to make sense of, what it is to be human, what meaning is, how we should act, and, and ethical claims and, and stuff like that. So I guess I guess my point of saying all this too is is I kind of I, I've come I, I've I, I kind of went through, I guess to kind of explain this, I went through like this phase of kind of the new age atheist phase. But I've kind of transitioned from that because I started realizing why people are religious. Like I get it. Like I don't I don't follow those texts. I don't believe those texts are the truth or whatever it is. But kind of like you, I'm still fascinated by what those texts have to say, what the what the context of the history and how those texts were formed based on the history and that type of stuff. They make interesting claims and they provide interesting insights sometimes to wisdom through their storytelling and all that. So yeah, I guess maybe to make this into a question is is do you see value in that and see value in those meaning claims? And as you're reading through, like kind of, is that something you found interesting as well? I think as you say, I mean, these big questions, why am I here? Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of this? What is, what is happening? What am I supposed to do with myself while I'm here? These are very, these are questions that I think determine the course of almost everybody's life somehow. Mm-hmm. There's very few, and there are, and there are very few places to turn to some extent. Art doesn't really address art will deal with those questions, but it's not, if it, if it provides any sort of answer, well then it's not art anymore, but mm-hmm. art will raise the questions and explore the questions and that, and, and take you deep inside, but, but doesn't really provide any answer. Philosophy is, is, is the place where the questions get raised. And as you say, not finally um, answered usually religion is the other place. I mean, if you're inclined to, to think about those questions, then you are going to be drawn to religion because religion is, is Mm -hmm. the other place where people in a very overt way, Agreed. Talking. I mean, I, I went through i I went through a period of time where I listened to a lot of Christian radio, and um, I don't anymore because I just got burned out on it. But it was really interesting to me because it was the only place on the radio where they were talking about life in a certain way. They were talking how to live and what's what's our purpose. And I didn't agree. And and sometimes I even sort of agreed with their answers. I just thought that they were putting a a template on it that was shrinking it, which is God. God dictates all the following things. But I think if you took out God, 
and you just swapped in a different word, you know, nature, maybe, mm. you'd, you'd get some interesting um, answers that way. And the, that exploration into the meaning of things is one of the things that makes us us, right? It's, exactly. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. And, and sometimes there's some really, there is some beautiful, genuine wisdom in these. I mean, Ecclesiastes, I'm a fan of Ecclesiastes. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful piece of philosophy, actually. Um, and yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And, and you kind of made me think of a point too of like how you were listening to Christian radio for a while and kind of made me think of how just, just seeing even within like a religion, for example, they have different interpretations of what meaning is, even from the, whether it's from the text or, or how to, how to perform in like a religious ceremony and stuff like that. Cause like the example for me is I grew up Catholic and I don't have like a transition story of like, Oh, I was super religious. And then, you know, I went to school and figured out that this is all bullshit type of thing. I was always, I've always been a skeptical person. Um, and, and even throughout my younger years, you know, I dreaded going to church because being Catholic, the, the ceremonies are actually like, although Catholics have some of the most beautiful churches um, and symbols and stuff, I think their masses tend to be some of the most boring, I think, amongst the, the Christian kind of forms of performing a mass. Um, and then, you know, when I stopped being religious, I start I went to a few non-denomination Christian uh, masses just because I was curious because it was like this this thing I realized like the the peers around me people my age some people I met in college that's the that's the churches they went to you know there was a, there was a lot of atheists around me there was a lot of people that just called themselves spiritual but then there was this like this new I would say like sort of sect popping up of non-denomination and in those masses they they always had like this very modern music going there was always like this this young like hip person in some like street clothes he was like around my age and he was all like jumping up and cheery and they ne- they didn't really like read from the bible for example it was more of like interpreting the bible in their own way that's like very modern spin on it and i always found that fascinating where it made me kind of started making me realize is like that's what this is for people is you know something like i feel like me and you and and, and people that listen to this show they're kind of wanting to go out and they never really want the answers to what meaning is. They don't really want that. They want to figure it out for themselves and make those proclamations for themselves and pick and choose and never be certain about it. But I do think there's like a section of the human population that that's just not the desire to deal with that shit, you know, <laughs> where it's like they, they, something they grew up with or maybe they had a point in their life where shit was hitting the fan and they're like, fuck it, um, I'm going to become religious now and, and the God saved me and stuff. And, and they just put their faith in that because they don't want the uncertainty of those, those things such as meaning. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of that, that realization for me I found interesting. Um, and, and yeah, I found, like I, like I said, I try to find the good and bad and not, I don't want to say bad, but just both sides of, of various issues. And religion is something I've transitioned in, in that sense. And I guess I wonder if you have like similar sentiments as well. 
I mean, I think if you believed in it, it, if you could really truly believe in it, and I don't know how anyone does because I certainly couldn't yeah, even I, if I, I wanted either. to. But, <laughs> but but if you could, if you if you really truly believed that the creator of the universe was interested in your existence and mm. loved you and was keeping an eye on you and that there's nothing to be frightened about with regard to death because you're going to go to a wonderful place afterwards and you're going to see, you know, those you lose, those you love, you'll see them again and you'll be reunited with them. And, you know, those people who are bad, the bad people, well, there is justice. They're going to get punished in the end and they're going to be punished harshly. I mean, if you really could believe all that, Mm -hmm. I guess I could see how all those things would feel good. Now, if you don't, there's a dark side, I think, to, to, to all that, but agreed (laughs) a lot of dark sides, but if you don't believe that stuff, then it, then it just looks sort of like they're children. Yeah. You're a child, you know, I mean, there, there are no final answers to any of this. You're right. People of our mindset are more inclined to want to explore, to want to figure it out to the degree that we can knowing from the start that that's to a very low degree, if Mm -hmm. any degree at all, you know, like I'm 61 years old. What have I really figured out about the meaning of life? Um, Not much, you know, love, love is the answer, I guess is as close as I get love, you know, try to love. Um, But beyond that, you know, I don't think, I, I don't think that's, that's not our fate in this life, you know, to kind of reach the end and go, ah, now I know, you know, now I, and and who would want it anyway? You know, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like on the level of comedy, because, you know, I love comedy and comedy is really um, an important part of my life and it always has been. They really, they, they, by embracing those truths and those certainties, they cut themselves off from a lot of things. And comedy is very true. They they cut themselves off from because comedy is very um, reliant upon surprise and uncertainty and um, darkness and pain. And if you are loved by the creator of the universe and you kind of, know what the meaning of everything is yeah you're not gonna be i mean there's a reason why those people don't have a very good sense of humor and they generally don't they're usually horrible like when when the christian because listening to christian talk radio you know you do bump into those who who are trying to be funny who are the funny ones and it is just some of the most hilariously unfunny comedy in the history of the world it's so tepid it's so it's so i think it's actually not a good way to i mean that would if I could sway anybody and I don't give a shit if I do sway anybody or not, it's not really what I'm about, but I suppose if I could, I would say you're missing out on more than you're gaining. I think you're missing out on a lot more than you're gaining. I think this, you know, Pascal's wager flipped on its head. You're losing this wager because what if you like give your whole life, you, you might, you, you might very well be sacrificing most of the deepest pleasures in life that pertain to 
questioning and exploring and laughing and looking hard at things and, and, you know, physical pleasures as well, sexual pleasures. And you might be sacrificing those for nothing. For what? Yeah. For the feeling of certainty, not that certainty yeah, actually exists. Certainty, which is bullshit, you know? Yeah. You don't have, ultimately, you don't have it. Nobody yeah. has it. And um, so I think, it's, I think it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a trap, but I think it's an attractive trap. It mm-hmm. must be, yeah. you know? A lot of people that do it. <laughs> people, no, 75 to 80% of the people on earth, as far as I can tell, do it. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, and I liked your point about the the comedy point because there's not I can't think of off the top of my head of like a hardcore like Christian com, com comedian that I really like I'm like a fan of, for example. And I think there's like for example, I think there's something about comedy where at the base of comedy and like for I guess one example George Carlin was amazing at this is just poking fun at the human condition of almost like that idea that we can't be certain about shit. And that's hilarious. Like you just have to laugh at it. It's kind of like almost like a very existential proclamation of it. Of like, just laugh at it. Cause that's all you can really do. It's, it's hilarious. And this is what we have to deal with. Um, yeah. And yeah. And if you know the absolute meaning of things, if you know how this began and how it's going to end and what's happening and what's funny. Exactly. Yeah. Good luck. What's yeah. funny? You know, a little kid toddling around who makes a funny face, a puppy, fall, you know, like, okay, yeah, you've got that. But the deeper sources of laughter are just, they're completely gone. Yeah. Cause yeah, I guess, I guess a point off that is almost like the, what we find funny is like these, what ifs is just, you know, like <laughs> poking fun at like different different ideas and, and, and stuff like that, that we, we don't really know for sure, but we're just, we're able to laugh at it because we don't know. And yeah, I think that's, that's important. And I had a point about, what was I going to say about that? Where something I noticed somewhat transitioned, but still staying on the religious topic of how, well, you, you mentioned how, yeah, like you get the appeal of religion, for example, where, yeah, you, like, for example, in Christianity, you, you go to the afterlife and you're in this blissful paradise for eternity and the bad people, they go to hell for eternity and have this eternal suffering and torture for all time. Um, yeah, like it's, I get the appeal of, oh shit, like maybe I should follow this God because I don't want to spend eternity in hell, even though if, as a human, I can't even comprehend what eternity is. <laughs> um, but even within that, like it, it's like they... They claim to accept that truth, but especially in like Western culture, I've, I've always found interesting is how the way we look at death and Western religions, especially and especially Christianity, where they mourn death. They mourn death so much where it's like they, they feel it as this, this tragedy and this sadness and they get, when we get depressed um, and I never could make that connection of, wait, you think they're going to blissful paradise, but yet you're like dying inside at this passing of this person. Like I get why, like I would have issue with someone dying because, because there is something about that unknown, like, oh, like what if that's it? Like they don't go anywhere and 
that's just it. The person that you know is dead. That's scary. I, I like I get the fear in that aspect, but the fear where it's like this blissful side, I never understood that. So like the way I interpreted that was was maybe like all <laughs> these kind of like hardcore Christians and very religious people, they have like this inner voice inside of them that does have doubt. Like they are uncertain. Like they just suppress it. We're, we're we're probably not suppressing it as much, but they just suppress it down. But really, that that doubt is still inside them. Um, yeah, I wonder if yeah, you kind of have. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think they call that doubt Satan. Yeah. Oh, that's a, I like that point. Yeah, that's a good point. I agree with that. It's. I guess that would, that would branching off that that would deal with the idea of how you know like desires they don't want to have. They just say, oh, that's like the temptation of Satan. So all of these things that they perceive to be things that they don't want to have, like thoughts of doubt, thoughts of desire that their God tells them they shouldn't have, it's just they suppress it. Um, and I guess – Yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I guess for, yeah. the, for the audience, Carl Jung would be a, a great one to decipher some of that stuff. Um, I, know, I, I know I heard you mention on other podcasts – Cause I, I, I like try to tune into some of what you had to say to to prepare for this because you're you're a fan of Freud, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so I, I was curious as I was like listening to that. Did you ever like kind of dive into some of Carl Jung stuff? Just because I feel like he dives into religion a little bit more than Freud even did. Yeah, I've I've read I've read a decent amount of Jung. Um, he he has a specifically. I mean, I read. I don't know, whatever his big, what is his big book? I don't know. What's it called? Oh, um, something in the unconscious. Or, or yeah, what is man. It? I have like the book right here. So I'm going to like pull it up for you. <laughs> Cause I can remember the name. Memories, dreams, and reflections is the one I always hear named. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's a really, really interesting thinker. Um, and he has one that's called uh, Response to Job or Reply mm. to Job, which is his take on the book of Job, which is which is quite interesting. Um, Fred, uh, Fred talks about comedy. So, of course, mm. I'm drawn yeah, to him. Yeah, for sure. And Freud is obsessed with sex. And, of course, I'm interested in that. And um, Freud is a beautiful writer you know mm. of all the great philosophers he's one of a handful who can write mm-hmm. and a lot of them are not very good writers you know but Nietzsche's okay. a great Nietzsche's an excellent outstanding writer wonderful writer Freud is a he's a he's a really really uh, good writer um I don't know whether I responded to Jung the same way and also I you know I grew up in Southern California and new agey world and mm. young was very, very attractive to those people. Some yeah. of those ideas translate over into new age thinking rather easily. So I think I, my starting point was like, uh, I'm not as into it, but, but I, 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 I did like the response to Job book. I thought it was good. Yeah. I, I've, I'm currently trying to go through his, very other very popular book, The Red Book, which is when he went through his period of psychosis mm-hmm. and kind of his, which I guess if you, if you take a little bit of issue with the way the New Age movement has kind of grasped onto him, which I also take issue with, um, 
at times as well. Uh, they they definitely take that book as well as as in some sort of proof. But yeah, like Carl Jung would even Jung would, would would not be a huge fan of some of the <laughs> the uses he gets he gets taken taken out with uh, with with some of that stuff. But right, right. Yeah. you you can't you can't blame a great thinker for who. Um, oh, exactly. Their work. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess to kind of, to, to not completely dive into that point, but I do think some of like the new age stuff is a lot of times what I found, and maybe this is just my coping mechanism because I'm, I'm kind of like in the psychedelic community. So I kind of attract some of those new age audience people. Um, and some of the topics I cover as well, they get interested in it, but I have a very scientific approach to some of the, the spirituality stuff and spirituality claims and all that. So I, I'm kind of attracted to, to reading some of Carl Jung stuff, but, um, mm-hmm. one of the, the, one of the realizations I've kind of had is, 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 which I also kind of find interesting is what you see, like religious people use people in the spirituality community, people in the scientific community, atheist community, philosophy community, whatever it is is a lot of times I feel like stuff just comes down to preference of language use where mm. it's, it's like we get put off by some people's perspectives in a way because of the way they use language and kind of like a misunderstanding of what people mean by certain words. Um, mm-hmm. Where, for example, in like the spirituality community, they, I guess, I guess the one is of course they, they talk about vibes, but they also talk about like energy where I think there is like some some truth to some of their claims about energy, and that's kind of like a lot of stuff that connects with Jung. But other times they take it like way too far, and they think mm-hmm. like energy just is able to be connected with with everything they talk about, and people will just be able to immediately decipher that. So yeah, I guess it's yeah. a, to, to connect it with some of your stuff is it's just another. I feel like it's another kind of human inclination to want to find something to put their stake in and be like, this is, this is it. And the new age, they kind of have picked their, they're open-minded to it a lot of extent, but they've also kind of picked their terms. And I feel like some of them have created quite the divide because they almost have like this religious tone around them. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. But I feel like with the new age stuff, it's a good transition into what the new age people like in religion. And that is about your, your new book, which I haven't read as much as your new book as your one on Christianity, but Mm -hmm. about the Buddhism and the Buddha. So I've been really curious to ask you about, about that though, Mm because Buddhism typically is a religion, at least in the West that doesn't get the backlash as, as Christianity, for example. (laughs) Right. Right. It gets a pass. It's sort yeah. of like, the cool, it's, it's the cool one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people think yeah. um, it's not actually, it's just as ugly. It's just as stupid. It's just as mean spirited. It's profoundly fraudulent and it's completely about this guy's ego at the center mm-hmm. of it. Although it ostensibly is about lack of ego. Yeah. That's, that's true. So I guess I guess what are your some of your findings and ways of of formulating this book that maybe is like different than than the other ones? Because I know you kind of covered um, very 
one central form of God and your other two, but this one you kind of transition into the Buddha who isn't really a God. He's well, just human. He kind of isn't, but he kind of almost functions as one because yeah. all the Hindu gods basically work for him. I mean, he's superior mm. to a God in a way because all the, all of those gods call him sir and defer to him according to him anyway. So he's, you know, no, he's, he's, he's not a God, but he's pretty close to eternal and he's pretty close to omniscient and mm-hmm. he's not omnipotent. No, mm-hmm. he's not omnipotent. And he, he basically dies a mortal life by eating some tainted meat and getting a bad case of diarrhea dying that way. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's different. Um, I found that uh, as I started reading their material, and I came at it um, just from the outside, you know, I didn't. I had very limited interaction, you know, experience with some American Western Buddhists who I thought were insufferably smug, and I didn't like them at all. I thought they were annoying, um, but. I didn't know much about it. And then I started reading it and I quickly ran into, this is about the most arrogant character ever created in the history of literature, this guy. And the stories are laughable, the stories of his life, because he's, he's always, he's, he's perfect all the time. I mean, in every way, physical perfection, Mm -hmm. spiritual perfection, intellectual perfection, everything he, so we're told, you know, again, I'm just using their stories to kind of riff on. And and that's what they say. Um, And he's not, he's actually, he comes off like a dick almost all the time. He's mean, he's, he's mean and he's stunted and he's puny and he's fearful when you, look at him the way I looked at him anyway, from my standpoint, he is. And, but I would have left it alone, I suppose, if I'd thought that those so-called beautiful beliefs were, were in fact beautiful, but I don't think they are at all. I think I found as soon as I started talking to Buddhists and, and their first point is life is pain. Life is suffering. I always bridled against that because I thought, well, that's, and that's it. That is the building book. That is the mm-hmm. starting point for Buddhism, yeah, life, for suffering. And I thought, well, that's bullshit. I mean, yes, of course, there's truth to it. I'm not saying life is wonderful and life is bliss. But life is pain as a starting point leads to some very misguided ideas about how to live. Because what it leads to is shut down the pain. That's the point. Shut down the pain. Stop the pain. And everything is about that. And the ultimate version of that is stop the pain by ceasing to exist. Because the long-term goal is to not exist, is to Mm -hmm. go extinct. And I thought that was nihilistic. And and I furthermore thought that even his advice, when you get to where the rubber meets the road, like, well, all right, here, all right, fine. I don't agree with that. I think it's about as wrongheaded and misguided a view of human life as I can imagine. I think we're incredibly lucky to be here. 
pretty mm-hmm. much all of us. I mean, I, I understand that's that a lot of people have it really, really hard, but being getting to live a human life is a remarkable opportunity and we get to feel things and see things and experience things and think about things and listen to things and touch them, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that starting point does not appeal to me. Um, and the idea of shutting down pain, I think is like that that's more or less the point I think is misguided, but then he, he, he gets to the actual life advice. How do you do that? And it just couldn't be more wrongheaded because what it amounts to is do everything right all the time, right actions, right words, right behavior, right thought, right work, right activity. Many of those things, by the way, the version of rightness, what quote right means is do what he says, mm-hmm. do what the Buddha says. That's what's right. Mm-hmm. But it's impossible. It's just fundamentally like this is bad advice for human beings. You're giving, you're selling bad advice to human beings. And I think there's a reason why they seem like insufferably smug fakes because they are insufferably smug fakes because you can't do it because that's not how it goes. We're nothing like that. We're very flawed. We're filled with fear. We're filled with resentments and we're filled with um, anger. We're filled with all kinds of complicated feelings. And so when the advice ends up, when the life advice ends up being just don't, just don't be that, be, you know, be, do right, do the right thing all the time. And then you can achieve extinction. And just before you achieve extinction, you can become a bodhisattva and, and mm-hmm. which is one of the most annoying concepts in the history of mankind, I find, because I've want, known yeah, people... Yeah, di- want to dive into what that is for the audience, like a little bit? A bodhisattva is somebody who's done, who is spiritually done. They have nothing left to learn. Mm-hmm. They could go extinct. They could cease to exist, which is the goal. But they choose to come back simply to help others. They have no needs. They have no desires. They are completely realized as a soul, but they have come back simply to help others. Okay. I think this ties into a desire in human beings, which is very related to ego. Mm -hmm. And I think it creates incredibly obnoxious uh, people. I think it's absolute horseshit. I think that's absolute horseshit. There's never been anyone like that. There never will be anyone. Yeah, so I guess there's a lot to unpack here because part part of it I agree, and I, I'll provide a, like a little pushback for those in the audience too. Um, I'm not saying like whatever I say is not necessarily my perspective either, but because um, I'm not I'm not a Buddhist, but I did do some like research. Go for it. I'm not. I'm. I did some research on Buddhism and then also uh, the Stoics because Stoics, the Stoics sure, are kind of like the what's that. Same, same in many ways. Same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. like the Stoics are kind of like the Western version of Buddhism. Very um, much so. And I, I do think like both sides do certain things better than the other. Um, but one, so like my agreement is, is I always find this interesting. And I get this because I'm kind of involved in like the psychedelic side of things where <clears throat> you hear Buddhist people that meditate 
Even can I, I just have to, can I just interject for a second? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What does that mean? Does that just mean like you just drop a lot of acid or, I mean, what is it? What are you, oh, what are like you talking about? Psychedelics? Yeah. What, what do you mean you're in the psychedelic community? I don't, I've, I'm not familiar with the psychedelic oh, community. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so basically, yeah, it, it's, I would say, it, you know, there's, there's of course like people that go to music festivals and listen to music and drop acid, for example. But then there's also like this growing population you hear about, you know, like Silicon Valley talk about it, microdosing, taking large doses of shrooms or doing ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, but they all, but there's, there's like a growing population in the U S that take this very self development side of things, a very internal journey, I guess you could say of kind of like understanding the makings of you. Um, and, and I do, I, I, I will defend, defend that side of things. And, but where my agreement comes is, and the reason there's a lot of connection here with this discussion where we could have a good convo about this, I kind of, kind of wish we would have started with this. Cause I feel like this might get into the meat of what we could talk about. Um, is the issue you see with with people that call themselves Buddhists, which are oftentimes people that call themselves Buddhists also have happen to be into the psychedelic use as well. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, I is that. you'll hear this where I know Buddhists talk about this, where you almost have this ego death, where they say their ego goes away. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah right. <clears throat> which they say they say yeah. So so I I, be, I believe the the experience of that is real cuz you know I've had one through the use of psychedelics. However, I know what you mean by people that are like these arrogant assholes that call like I'm this this egoless person just yeah. operating in the world and and they're obnoxious because what happens is is I see this through personal experience and I deal with my own ego. The idea that you have an ego death and it's permanently gone to some most extent, that's that's pretty much bullshit. Uh, like, if there's anyone that's ever fully accomplished that, it, it's a very very small number of people. Um, but the idea is is where I think a lot of Buddhists misinterpret it is it's like you you can have like an ego death and see your ego like kind of go away. But the whole purpose of that is to realize like the whatever you call yourself, the identity of you, that shit's moldable and changeable. And like, you don't need to like latch on to things about yourself. You can change them. I think that's kind of the idea. But what happens is, is where I agree with you, it's that happens to them. They have that experience and they just think it's just, it's constantly like that. Like they stop meditating or the psychedelics wear off or whatever. If you think your ego is just going to be gone, what happens is you kind of, what I always like to call it, it's like this secret ego comes up around you and it actually just makes you a bigger asshole. Cause, cause now like most people are aware, like, like you're probably aware that you have an ego to some extent, you try to keep it in check as much as you can. But then there's some people out there that think they had their ego die and now they're just operating without an ego, but really they're still having an ego because you need an ego to fucking survive. Um, so yeah, that's why, what my well, point these is, are the, ins- these are the insufferable people that I was talking yeah, about. And this, I is, asked- this is insufferable and this is dishonest. Mm-hmm. And they are lying to themselves and they're yep. revealing their own ego when they talk about their ego death. Absolutely. Yeah. They are full of shit. Yeah. It's yeah. not true. <laughs> and it's it, simply not true. Yeah. And it's, it's also just lack of awareness of what uh, some teachings are that are out there because I'm always a big one of like, you don't want your ego to die. If your ego dies, you cease to want to exist. 
With ego comes desire. With ego becomes necessary flaws. With ego becomes your ability to learn and find new perspective and just at the base level, survive. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you on that point. So I guess maybe my pushback is yeah, with, yeah. with Buddhism. And like I said, I'm not a Buddhist, but um, I do take interest in some of Western's new, the Western culture's new fascination with it. Uh, just because mm-hmm. that's kind of like my thing is like, okay, why is, why, why is this stuff pop up? And also I agree with you. I'm kind of fascinated why Buddhism kind of gets this, past because I do take issue with like the Buddha, for example, to some extent where, for example, he kind of runs into the same issues that most religions run into where he's sexist, <laughs> um, Yeah, you know, and, and it's like he gets a pass and that stuff. Uh, All right, let's have a pushback, pushback. I want to hear it. Oh, okay. Sorry. So yeah, I keep agreeing with you, but <laughs> the pushback is, is I don't think it's about really where, where they think they get to that end state. It's about ceasing to exist it's their big thing, and which is what what I like about Buddhism, is they don't cease to exist as they become back into being part of the universe, the whole. Because they always talk about the whole, and the whole is. It, I mean, we don't. It's probably too big of a topic for today, um, but kind of connects with some of the stuff in in like this idea of like one consciousness and stuff. Not necessarily putting forward what I believe around that, but I, that's the idea that they have around that. So it's like what I the reason I like it and I don't criticize Buddhism as much as other religions is because that idea of going the whole makes it so that what people um humans on earth they're part of the whole universe. Like that's all there is is just the universe. Where Buddhists they don't really believe in this idea of a beginning and an end that for example Christianity has cuz Christianity has this idea of beginning and an end we're like, in the beginning, God created everything, blah, 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 you know, that part. And then there's there's supposed to be this judgment day where it all comes down. Judgment day, judgment day, judgment day. But Buddhists, what I like about them is they don't take this linear path of time. They don't take this linear idea of beginning and end. It's all just happening. Um, and it's it's there's And it's all just connected. Everything is connected. It's more circular, which I find fascinating because... I'm not saying everyone takes correct, like what even is a correct interpretation, but the correct interpretation of what they're trying to say, because they do turn into insufferable assholes. But that idea, I feel like connects you more to being part like of the human condition, being part Mm -hmm. of that thing where like Christianity, all of their problems, they're able to put it up in this man in the sky and project him up there. Oh, all that shit. Oh, he's going to answer it. It's up there out of sight, out of mind. They project it outward. But we're Buddhists, I feel like they're the the religion kind of forces them into more of, oh no, like I'm part of all of this. I could in my next life, I could become this animal and do all, you know, and have to experience that form of suffering. And it's more of like this interconnectedness. And, and that's where the idea of, of karma comes into play too. And yeah, that's kind of like been my interpretation. And I'm not saying I'm like an expert on Buddhism. I just done some research on it. But maybe that's where the pushbacks. So I'm kind of curious what you have to say about about that idea. I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think the circularity is inherently less ridiculous mm. than yeah. the you know agreed yeah beginning and end version of you know the Christian story, which is just creates huge natural questions like. Well, 
was God doing before the beginning and what's he going to do after the end? Just is kind of silly. I also agree that bringing animals more into the picture, including them, incorporating them in the story is, I, I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. That's that, that is basically true. Although the Buddha says it's terrible to be an animal, you know, it's awful. Every it's, it's awful because they're, because they're, so you know stupid and crude and uh, that it's a terrible thing to be an animal so it's not like he he thinks it's a good thing but yes they are more part of the story um there was another point you made at the end and now i forgot what was the last point Um, you made i don't know i guess maybe the point about the the idea of like when you die or like when you're kind of done having your was that, was that one where you kind of like go back into the hole, which I'll yeah, kind of, yeah. 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 That's, I don't know that's if that was one you're talking I mean, about. there's an awful lot of hell mm-hmm. in Buddhism. It's not exactly like that's not there. There's an awful right. lot of, no, I agree. An awful lot of punishment. And, oh, I know what I was going to, I mean, he didn't come up with the idea of karma. I mean, that's, he, he mm. you know, it's the Buddha, Buddhism has the same relationship to Hinduism that Christianity has to Judaism. It just mm-hmm. borrows an yeah. awful lot. Like, like most religions. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, probably so. Except like, you know, that proto-religion that existed 20,000 years ago that we don't know that much about, maybe, but or 100,000 years ago. Yeah. But I don't find the idea of karma... Uh, to be a good idea at all. I think it's a really ugly idea. And I think the way it's used is ugly because the nature of karma suggests that if you are poor and sick in this life, Mm -hmm. you deserve it. Mm -hmm. And if you're wealthy and healthy, you deserve it. So it doubles so the the rich and successful get to tell themselves that they must have been good last time around. So it doubles up their reward and the mm-hmm. poor and the sick have to tell themselves that they're being punished for the last time around. So it doubles up on their punishment. I think it's, I think it's horrible. Actually. I think it's a horrible idea. I think the idea of, you know, you know, quote karma in this life, like you behave a certain way and there are consequences. Sure. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I get that. But the idea of, of karma lasting from one lifetime to another, oh, I, th- I think it's ugly and terrible. I don't yeah. Like it. And it gets back to those kind of absolute claims that I take major issue with as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, the idea that in the end, uh, extinction means you rejoin the universe and you're part of the universe. I guess, whatever, <laughs> whatever the fuck that means, you know, I mean, honestly, what does that yeah. mean? You're no. extinct, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm part of, now I go back to the ocean and mm-hmm. I'm a droplet and it's like, oh, this is just another form of bullshit, you know, like, what does that mean? Right. Even if true, do you know what I mean? Somebody says that ostensibly as a way to demonstrate their lack of ego. I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I totally get some of the criticisms around that, but yeah, I definitely want to provide some pushback and, and maybe one more thing to this kind of be like a kind of ending topic to kind of dive into for 
some minutes here. But um, I'm trying to connect this because, like, at the fundamental level, I think to really understand, and I'm not saying, like I said, I'm not an expert on Buddhism by any means, but um, I do think, like, understanding Buddhism, it is important to 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 take kind of the like not only meditation approach, but also where they're coming. And like I said, like Christianity makes some absolute truth claims that at a fundamental level, level, I just completely disagree with. And maybe my issue is, is with Buddhism, um, I kind of somewhat, somewhat agree with kind of their fundamental truth claim a little bit more. Like I said, I don't know if it's true for sure. It's just something I've been interested in is, is their idea around, not only their more, I think, concept of time that connects with science a little bit better, but their concept around consciousness of consciousness being a little bit more fundamental to the universe than, say, even like a, like Christians don't really get into that stuff. They don't really get into kind of the the nature of the universe. The, where Christians kind of say like the nature of the universe, oh, we have this God that created all this stuff. That's about it. Like, <laughs> they really explain like how that is or why we have space and time and all that stuff. Where Buddhism, like I said, I'm not saying they do the best job, it puts forward a more coherent idea around that. Um, and, but like the main point, I think, where we, I, I want to kind of get your feedback again on this idea of maybe pushing back on the suffering point because. I do see where where people would take issue with it, where this idea of of suffering being like basically inevitable, um, which which is a common theme in, in like modern philosophy, like existentialists talk about that shit too, and and even Nietzsche gets into that. Uh, but I always try to somewhat switch the word of suffering into more of like internal conflict, because I feel like suffering has a lot of loaded words around it where like suffering people take it to mean oh like immediately it's it's just bad you know what i mean where it's like internal conflict is more of like okay life is that because you're born and you don't really have anything pushing you towards your actions you're just a newborn baby that is this ball for what buddhists i think would say it's just this ball of consciousness that's what you are you're not tormented by the realities of life yet. Um, and, and what happens is, is as you grow up, you get all these various things and beliefs inserted into you that creates that internal conflict that changes the way you operate in the world, that alters your desires, that forms what you believe to be you. And what the Buddhists, from my understanding of what they're trying to do is they want to take that internal conflict and make you recognize that a lot of that is just created. It's just inserted into you from society, from the world, from nature as a whole. Um, And the idea, for example, why I think understanding meditation is important it, and not, not, not like, again, to add another clarifier, I'm not like an expert meditator. I, I struggle to like consistently do it myself. But the idea is like still where this, this meditation makes you kind of aware of like all this stuff that you create around yourself and around your identity so that you just become aware of that and you kind of just realize the creation of not only your ego, but the creation of with your beliefs and what other outside influences and all those outside influences and beliefs are what really actually cause your suffering. It's like, for example, like 
to kind of give you like a real world example, um, something that we've all experienced. So someone cuts you off in the road. Like you get a moment of like, fuck you. Like I do it too. Like <laughs> I'm not saying I'm like enlightened or some shit like that, but like you get that internal conflict of, Oh fuck, fuck that guy for cutting me off. But you like recognize the, I think the, what Buddhists try to say is, and maybe I'm just taking too much of like an Americanized version of it. Um, but which is also interesting in itself is how it's changed. But what they would say is, is, Oh, you need to recognize what caused that person to maybe decide to cut you off. Maybe they had a shitty day and they have a bunch of shit going on in their life that's not going great for them. That's causing a lot of internal suffering for them. And then they cut you off and then it spreads it to you. But really you have to like process that and forgive them because you realize they're coming from a place where they didn't choose to necessarily have that suffering, right? So it's kind of like the point is, the saying all this is, it's just becoming aware of your identity, of, of the origin of your suffering so that you can kind of just release it. And I'm not saying you have to like agree with that, but I guess maybe that's, I want to hear your thoughts on what you kind of think of that idea around it. Well, I don't think that's what he said. You know, fundamentally, he didn't mm-hmm. say internal conflict. I mean, your version's better. I mean, I prefer it. <laughs> internal conflict sounds better. That's not what he says. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's I, yeah. not there. You know, He's, he says pain and suffering. And he says it's there from the start. The womb is a horrible cesspool. And mm-hmm. birth is an excruciating agony. And life is is shit from the start on every level. Mm-hmm. And the body is a is a prison from the start. And it gets sick and it ages and it dies. And it's it's just all kind of repulsive. And his descriptions mm-hmm. of what human life are are very vivid. And they're about how it's pain and suffering. They're not about internal conflict, Brendan. So, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're talking about a different starting point. If the starting point of Buddhism was life is internal conflict, I would be like, yeah, that's more amenable to, to what, uh, what I think. And also it's not, uh, suffering is, and pain is, um, is inevitable because of the nature of the external world. Exactly. It's pain and suffering are just inevitable. They are. It's mm-hmm. not like that's point one. Mm-hmm. Life is pain. Okay. Swap in a different word. You can't swap in internal conflict. That's not going to fly. You can, it, you just won't. It's not internal conflict. Suffering, uh, you know, look, go to a synonym finder and, and, and put it, you know, and look up pain and suffering and every other word. And they do try to soften it because they mm-hmm. know that this is problematic. They understand that. They understand mm-hmm. that this is a problematic starting point and that not everybody agrees with that. And that on some level, you know, you're stunted if you think that. On some level, you're blind. No, it's mm-hmm. not. No, it isn't. You're wrong. And if you're wrong from the very start, how can you be right about anything? Really? Now, did, did he get lucky that his scientific, that his view of things in terms of there not being one, you know, that we're more, uh, we're not one thing, let's say, that there's more fluidity uh, yeah. within. Could totally Does be that lucky. match up better? with our current understanding of consciousness than the Christian view 
It does. Mm-hmm. So does that allow people who want to, you know, to, with a more scientific worldview to go, oh, Buddhism's right. I guess, you know, I suppose if you want to cherry pick that thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying know. I I give them as much credit as some people do. It's just, I, th- I, I guess my reason for saying that was basically like, you know, like this is probably why they're getting some more of a pass amongst like the scientific community. And that's like the reason behind it. Um, I mean, look, well, first of all, it's exactly, you know, for Westerners, it's, it's different. It's mm-hmm. new. Oh, you know? yeah. Like nobody yeah. really even knew shit about it. Like, as far as I know, like Schopenhauer is one of the very, very first ones to talk about it. And he dug it. Mm-hmm. And I love Schopenhauer. So, Same. you know, yeah. I mean, he's, I think he's fantastic. He dug it and that's whatever, 1820 or something. So this is all very new yeah. you know, 1810. So it's only in the last couple of hundred years and it's not so like embarrassingly literal maybe as the Christian story uh, and the, mm, and yeah. it's, it, it's, and it also doesn't have one book, you know, like, Oh yeah. Like, it's confusing. You know, you gotta like read, you gotta yeah. read like a hundred, uh, 200, five, it's a, it's a rabbit hole. You can just keep going and going. Yeah. <laughs> going and going and going and it splits in two and mm-hmm. the follow-up version of it, the outgrowth of it, the Mahayana version of it is not, is not the same. Right. It has, you know, like all you have to do is basically say the Buddha's name and you're going to go to heaven for, if you're on your deathbed <laughs> and you say the Buddha's name, you're going to go to heaven forever, pure land. And in pure land, you know, flowers sing and the streams sing and you eat jewels for some reason and you fly kites and, you know, that's, that's pure land. So it's a shapeshifter mm-hmm. too. And that makes it a little harder to pin down. So I'm more talking about, I think the, the, the Theravada version of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, the one I always hear Westerners use, and maybe I'm wrong on this cause I don't, yeah, I don't know enough, but, um, Tibetan Buddhism and like Zen Buddhism is like the, the yeah. popular ones. Um, and I guess like, and I do feel like a lot of maybe our disagreement is, is not necessarily cause like, like I said, I'm not like a big follower of basically any religion. Cause I kind of think most, like all of them are basically bullshit. Um, but I'm always am curious of the effects certain religions have. And on Western culture, I have been fascinated of what the Buddhist effects have had. Not all good, but I do think there is is some good. And that's kind of like my motivation for switching that term to to internal conflict, because maybe this will be my kind of my closing closing thoughts and questions for you is, is like because the way I interpret internal conflict is if you have internal conflict, you necessarily have suffering. Like internal conflict, conflict basically means you have within your inner being, whatever you identify with within yourself, there's something that's not meshing there. And if something's not meshing, you're not happy. <laughs> you have pain and you have suffering if something is colliding because, you know, that it's like a it's like a force of something that you don't want and it's suffering. Um, and I don't necessarily if I agree with the Buddhist idea either of like it starts there. You know, because like my understanding, and, and this is maybe this is where my lack of understanding, but maybe it's more about 
the minute you have like human influence upon you, that's when the inner conflict begins. But maybe that starting point is like, I would say it's more love. Like that's my, that's my belief. Um, but yeah, so I guess, I don't know if that addresses your point adequately, but that's kind of the way I've interpreted internal conflict. It's an interesting defense. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, I don't um, know. <laughs> maybe. What, uh, what, what good has Buddhism done in the West? I'm just um, interested. What, 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 what do you think it's done that's good? So, so I guess this goes back to branching off of, let's say, so how do I, I want to phrase this the right way. Um, so I guess, so, so in the U S for example, in Western culture itself, we've had this shift away from religion and with that shift away from religion, although, you know, I find atheism valuable because it makes people question their religion, their beliefs, their absolute truth claims, that type of stuff. Um, but I do, I've made this transition basically kind of reading some Carl Jung um, and some psychology stuff. I do see an importance of placing meaning somewhere. And I don't think you, we need a religion for that meaning, but I don't think, for example, like new age atheism and, um, you know, morality based purely on science or whatever. Um, I don't know if, if, if that's the answer. Cause a lot, for a lot of people that still causes inner, like kind of going back to that inner conflict from my experience, it still causes inner conflict and, and people in Western culture, there's still this, this issue with, Depression, for example, we have a growing issue with depression, people not knowing what their place is in life. And there can be a lot of external causes that are causing that. Maybe it's not necessarily move away from religion. It could be things such as the internet. They could be playing a role too. I I agree with that. But I do think Buddhism and this idea around meditation and and stuff like that, it's, it's moved people away from the external that I think Western religions often are about. It's like this external aspect of like, where can I place my meaning externally? But like with Buddhism, I think it's a much more internal, it forces you internally instead of externally. It's instead of like, where can I find my meaning out there? It says, oh shit, like I can find my meaning in here and within myself. Um, and I do find that to be, important when answering those meaning questions because at the end of the day is like your journey and and what you like find passion is like for example you find passion in in comedy and you found passion in in screenwriting and writing these books and stuff like that and that's probably created some happiness for you sense of purpose and i do think humans we want purpose we want meaning and and part of that is is an inward journey so something that forces you inward instead of outward I think can have some, some value. And I'm not saying it's all good. Like I said, I just see some good in that from what I've seen. And then also some of the research with meditation and whatnot. And it, maybe it's not necessarily, maybe this is where we, we actually don't disagree is it might be the fact that meditation that occurs because people start looking into Buddhism, or it could be that people started looking into meditation and they just found Buddhism. But whatever the case is, there's there's something there for the psychology of the human psyche. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point, and um, I will conclude my uh, assault on Buddhism by saying something positive about it, which is I think a a very profound psychological insight 
that I think he may, maybe was the first one to have because I, I think he predates the Stoics. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that when we don't have what we want, we suffer because we want it. We're hungry yeah. and we very much need that thing and we worry and we yeah. fret and, and, and we struggle. And then we get the thing we want and we're still unhappy mm-hmm. because now we're scared of losing it. And now we live in fear that it will go away. And now we, from the moment we get it almost, we know that we're not going to be able to hold on to it. Yeah. And that that causes its own kind of pain. I'm not aware of anybody else in the history of the world saying that before him. And I think there's a lot of deep psychological truth to that. And I think Agreed. it's, I think it's a, a really, really valid insight and um, useful in a way. So there's that. Yeah. I like, I like that closing thought. I think that's a perfect way to, to end the show. So yeah, I want to say um, thank you for coming on and, and I will include the links to your book and also the new movie as well. So people, people check out that, that listen to the show and, and all that stuff. But yeah, cool. I really appreciate you coming on. This is actually, this is a really fun convo. Thanks Brendan. Fun talking to you. Thanks. <laughs>